The thing that I kind of learned is one, you can always figure out a way to measure anything. You don't need to make it perfect, right? It wasn't a perfect measurement, but it was, I did it the same way every time. So as long as you do it the same way, a little bit off, it's okay. And and the second thing is it actually enabled us to convince corporate headquarters because their first reaction when the revenue started to slump was cut all the advertising spend. But we were able to convince them that no, this is a distribution problem. It's not a, a demand problem. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jack McCullough. I am the president and founder of the CFO Leadership Council, and I am your host for this week's edition of Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. This is the third time I've hosted this, and I want to take a moment to thank Stamply for inviting me back to host this discussion, which I've been looking forward to for quite some time. But, you know, more importantly, simply for launching this podcast, I believe the podcast is almost a year old, having launched in August of 2021. And I know from my own members and just other CFOs that it's really become the go-to podcast for financial leaders. So, you know, congratulations to Stampley on a great first year of really helping CFOs become better at their jobs. My guest this week is John Bali. John is the CEO of FutureView. Before we get into some formal stuff, John, I'd like to have the audience get a chance to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell them, you know, where you grew up and, sure. and you know, what, what that might have been like. I think we're both small town kids. Yeah, I was born in a little log cabin with my, that my father built. No, I wish not quite that far back, but <laughs> so, I grew up born in Syracuse, New York, but I grew up in the Tidewater, Virginia area, mostly with the exception of about four years I spent living in Singapore back in 1970 through 74. So, which I always thought was interesting because as I'm foreshadowed foreshadowed my time spent in Asia with Bristol Myers down the road. So I grew up there and went to Wave and Mary in in Williamsburg, Virginia, Colonial Williamsburg, and and then on to Pete Marwick. So yeah, absolutely. William and Mary, second oldest school in the country, I believe. So I was I was especially attracted because you get to wear the powdered wigs, you know, when you what an experience that must have been. <laughs> so it's it's interesting because like me, you referred to the firm as Pete Marwick. Yeah. And in fact, you and I were co-workers, although in different cities. So it's quite unlikely that we ever met. But yeah, I started my career at Pete Marwick too. And what was that like? Was that a good first job right out of college? Yeah, so a good question. I was I was in the Norfolk office. You probably remember like me when the K came into it, when they first bought some firm in a place I had no idea where it was, Kleinvelder, Girdler or something like that way back when. Something like that, yeah. And uh, you know it was a good, first of all, Norfolk is obviously, did you start in the Boston office or in the- I did, uh, yes. Yeah. So you were in a big office. I was in a, Norfolk was, you know, relatively small office for Pete Marwick, but it, kind of good for me because I got to work on a lot of small clients, which gave me kind of a understanding of a full business, which I always thought was kind of good. I also uh, think it's, uh, you know, when I, when I kind of, Norfolk is unique in that a lot of Navy people in Norfolk and a lot of Navy wives who'd gone back to school, gotten their degree. So I tended to work, instead of working with a typical whole bunch of 23, 24 year olds, as I started out, I had a lot of, of you know, mid thirties women who were Navy wives who were used to being in control. And 
they would, I don't know if you, you, I know you remember this was suit and tie days. And one of the things on the review was like dress and grooming. And I would constantly get critiqued every two or three weeks on an audit. You know, you're not wearing the right ties or you've worn that suit too many times in a row. It's just, a, it was a very interesting experience as a yeah. starting point. I got stuff like that too. And I was never sure if I was being hazed. Yeah, so I would get like anonymous notes in my mailbox that my ties were out of style and stuff. Like I, I got stuff right on the form. They would they would write it in there, and you know you you don't you know I have huge respect for a, a navy wife. They know how to manage the manage things, and they were like they had no problem looking at me and saying that that won't work, John. You're gonna you got to put on the blue when it's not matching the shirt or whatever. So yeah, I will tell you, and to their credit, this isn't a criticism at all, but the 22 year olds today just. You know, they wouldn't have that. No, ever. no, I didn't. Yeah. I remember kind of being afraid of my bosses, which in hindsight's kind of stupid, nonetheless. <laughs> so I didn't have any naval wife bosses. I used to, I, I actually kind of miss the tie and white shirt kind of days because it was like putting on your game uniform, you know. Now you sort of show up and especially now after COVID, you show up, you know, half, you know, wearing, wearing t-shirts and it's, you never know what to expect. But back then it was like, every day was like, you know, putting game, putting your game face on, so. Yeah, I, uh, it's, it is true. I mean, there's certainly, it gives you a confidence too. like, I do a fair amount of public speaking. And the, when I do put on a suit and tie, I just feel like I'm going to crush it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, when yeah. I'm in a polo shirt or something like that. It's, it's hard less. to, I, it I totally agree. Much. I totally agree. Yeah. So anyway, right now you are, congratulations. You're the CEO of Future View Systems. What can you tell us about? So CEO, what we do is we do, we work with companies, mostly in the middle market uh, area to help them kind of transform their finance function. The idea of FutureView really came out of sort of my, my experience as a CFO. You know, you, I, I've on certain things, both with certain technologies and with certain practices and architectures, I, I kind of realized with each subsequent CFO job that I got faster and faster. You know, like it took me, it went from taking me 18 months to build kind of what I would call a mature finance function to being able to do it in two months. And, and the last one, and I started to realize that all the pain points I was addressing were the same pain points that a lot of other companies were having. And so with a couple of, of co-founders, including my head of FPNA at the time, we, uh, we started FutureView to really, it's really, that's the design to help a company act like a mature finance function way before they have the size and scale to be able to do it. Okay. And how long has it been since FutureView? Started it four years ago. Okay. You know, yeah. con congratulations. It, it seems you. like you've made some terrific momentum in a relatively short period it's, of time. It's, so. it's been, a, been a lot of fun, been an experience. Yeah. And I'm curious because more and more we're seeing CFOs assume the corner office. Yeah. And do you think this is a trend that's going to continue? I do. I think the CFO has one of the reasons I really like being a CFO for so many years was it gives you a perspective on the full business. You know, you are always, you're sitting right there next to the CEO and you're, you're working to the exact same scorecard as he is or she is. And uh, so, you know, I like, I think, I think a CFO has kind of a unique position. You go to board meetings, you present, you understand where the board is coming from, you interact with everybody and you have kind of a fiduciary thing role in that. So I, I sort of think that, I also think there's a lot of different kinds of CFOs. I know, as I know, you know, and it's a role that you can play either as broadly as you want or, or more narrowly. So I always, I always kind of think of it like a, a, like a point guard in basketball, sort of, you know, like a good point guard, like a, a Chris Paul, or can feed the ball to the right scorers and know who's hot when they're, when they need it, but also has to be able to uh, 
take a shot sometimes himself. And then other guards, I was thinking about the guy who was Carl Malone's point guard, just he knew just to feed the ball. Don't take too many shots, you know, just feed the ball mostly. And so, so I think this, a good CFO can, if you choose to, you can play that role broadly and you can put it into, you know, into play and do a lot of other things. Ultimately, you're trying to figure out what do I need to do as CFO to make that team win? It's interesting because literally just yesterday I was talking to a young CFO Mm -hmm. and she was talking about, she actually doesn't have the great accounting background. And I, you know, I, I think that's probably okay. And I, my comparison happened to go to football and I said, you know, look at Joe Montana. He was a great leader. He was a great performer yeah. in the clutch. He was quick getting rid of the ball. He made smart decisions. He was accurate, yeah. but his arm wasn't good at all. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's interesting how sports analogies play off. I ended up calling her the Joe Montana report of CFOs, which, you know, as it turns out, she's a football fan. So she liked that analogy. So. <laughs> I- I have that problem all the time. I use way too many sports analogies and everybody who tells me, you know, I, I can tell right away whether I'm getting the blank look or whether I'm clicking. Yeah. Well, with the two of us, we made it seven minutes before our first. So that's actually <laughs> pretty good for you and me. But uh, anyway, I want to continue a little about, because you've had just an absolutely fascinating story as a financial leader. So can you take us through it? And, you know, maybe from after Pete Marwick or KPMG, sure. young people know sure. it. And, uh, you know, how, you know, what it led, what some of the great things you did, because you experienced some fun stuff. Yeah, I've had a, a, a lot of fun. And, and looking back, it's, it's looking back longer than I ever thought <laughs> I'd be looking back. But, you know, I spent four years at Pete Marwick. I think I was not the world's greatest auditor, but I, I learned a lot and, and then went into Bristol Myers with in the internal audit group. And went to move to New York City and uh, traveled all around the world, did audits in Indonesia, New Zealand, uh, you know, just Panama, anywhere you could think of. I'd, I got there and spent like four weeks at a time. And that was a lot of fun and also really useful because I learned a lot about processes, you know, as opposed to, as you know, at, like Pete Marwick, you kind of learn, okay, the number is right as of a certain date, but you have no assurance that it's going to be right the next day. All you know is you, you, you count. A process with a process orientation, you got to have that that look at how the cycles of the business work, and I got that pretty well. And so I did that for a couple of years, and then moved into the mostly into the nutritional division of Bristol Myers, Mead Johnson, which makes infant formula big big topic nowadays. But and and that kind of led me into you know going to Asia, and I went, I was in the Philippines at age just before I turned thirty. I became the director of finance in the Philippines which was kind of a, a hugely, I'd been working with them a little bit ahead of time. And then kind of, it turned out that I was the right person for that role at that time, just the circumstances. And, and there probably were only like negative one people volunteering their hands to move to the, to Manila at the time. And I thought, Hey, this sounds pretty exciting and moved there with my, my one-year-old son and my wife to the, to the chagrin of my, my parents and her parents, first grandchild on both sides. And I moved them <laughs> across oh the, across the planet, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but, uh, but man, great experience for me. Cause I got to work with, you know, all of a sudden having, go- never having managed a PL and having only very little supervisory experience. And all of a sudden I had, you know, 50 plus people working for me and I was own, owned the PL at Bristol for, for the Philippines. And, you know, it was a great experience. Learned all, all kinds of, I, I learned how to do just about everything from understanding the channels in, you know, how his inventory got along, got through the channels in there to having a marketing director who would tell me to get his gun when we were on the way to, uh, to visit a client because he saw a roadblock coming up and uh, some interesting things. Yeah, get my gun because there's a roadblock. We were, I never forget, we were, we went to visit our distributor 
who we were trying to have some discussions with and my marketing guy, one of the smartest guy named Chichi, who was one of the smartest marketing guys I ever worked with. And someday I'll tell you about how he invented a whole syndrome for, for selling <laughs> formula, but he big, big, they'd had a typhoon that day. So trees are all over the place and things are kind of chaotic, but we're going in his car to the, uh, to the place. And I see like some policemen and a whole bunch of trees down up ahead. And he goes, John, he's just talking. He barely breaks sentence. And he goes, reach in the glove compartment, hand me my, my pistol. And I'm like, what? I'm like, Where am I going here? But luckily it never came to, we, I, he never had to fire. We never had to show it. And the police let us go right through. So that's really interesting for him. That was probably a pretty normal thing. He didn't even blink. Yeah. I, I'll tell you one funny story that I always love. Yeah. He, when I had a guy, the first guy I worked for in the Philippines, general manager, one day we were going to a traffic's horrible in Manila. We're going to work and he, he wants to make a left turn. And if you don't make this left turn, you got to go all the way around. It could take like an hour, but the left turn is illegal. So <laughs> he pulls over, makes the left turn. Immediately he's pulled over by a policeman. And the policeman says, well, we can work out an arrangement for like 50 pesos, like two bucks. So this guy pulls out a hundred bucks, hundred pesos, says, I don't have a change. And the policeman takes it and he says, tomorrow you can make this same turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's an organized system, true, I guess. True story. <laughs> wow, that's kind of crazy. So, but one of the things you were telling me beforehand about, I, I think it's fair to say that finance in the Philippines at that point in your career wasn't as technology centric as it might be today. And you had some really interesting experiences along that. It's that something you yeah. can share? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, and I date myself a little because this was, I introduced email in the Philippines for the first time, which was a, a really interesting endeavor all of a sudden to give people email and then didn't have anybody to send it to outside of the Philippines for a while, but this was like 92, 93. But where I really got involved is I learned about OLAP technologies, which basically allowed you to, you know, pull in huge amounts of data and or organize data very quickly and kind of got you out of that spreadsheet trap that even then was a big deal, you know, where you had so many linked spreadsheets. And one of the things that I did there was set up a, it's maybe a longer story than you want, but I'll, I'll try it. Sure, go ahead. Tell, sure. tell me if it's boring, but so when I joined the Philippines, I told you I had P&L responsibility. I'd never had that before. And the budget for the first month was, was about a hundred million pesos at that time, around 8 million bucks for January. I got there and uh, actual sales came in at about 1 million. So I, I didn't know what, what to do. I didn't feel very good. So I called my boss in the US and said, what do, you, what do you think? He goes, just add that to the next month's forecast. So, so the next month, another 100 million. So I added to it. So now it's 200 million in February. And we came in at like 30, get to the third quarter. And he goes, and I said, now we really got a problem. We're like way behind. And he goes, we should do a price increase, which seemed weird to me. But what yeah. I learned is when you deal with a distribution, you know, your revenue is from selling to a distributor. So the price increase encourages everybody to build up inventory, kind of take a last bite, especially in a highly inflationary economy like the Philippines. Everybody's trying to buy more stuff. So, so even then it wasn't very successful though. The revenue did go up, but we're way behind budget. And I started to look at it and I'm thinking, well, we're behind budget, but I'm not convinced we're advertising to beat the band and we have, I'm not convinced people aren't using the product, but we have no way to see that. All we can see is here's how much we sell to the distributor, right? I don't know how many moms are going to the shelves and buying, you know, our infant formula off of the, off the shelf. So I needed to figure out some way to show that even though 
our revenue wasn't working out. And this goes to show you accounting doesn't always tell you everything you want to know, even though the revenue wasn't where we expected it to be, that we were getting sales. And the way we did that was by creating a, we went in, we went into a, in Metro Manila, we created like a panel of mm-hmm. stores. So we had 80% of our, 80% of our sales came through 50 big, like Costco kind of stores in Metro Manila. And we went in there and we said, okay, let's figure out how we can see how many cans get sold off of the shelf. Well, one of the advantages in the Philippines is that there are a lot of people, you know, it's not, a, it's, and labor is relatively inexpensive. So we had a guy who literally stood in front of our product all day long in each one of these stores. So we had people in every one and they would, you know, and the minute you went and you bought a can off the shelf, they would run to the back room and get another can and put it up. So it'd be like a store with perfect facing all the time. So I thought, well, man, we could get these guys to tell us how much we're selling and we could find out every day. So my first thought was, I was big into laptops then because we'd just gotten, you know, laptops were just starting to come out. I'm like, let's give this guy a laptop. And laptops were like three grand, which would have been like four years of salary for the guy. So <laughs> that, that didn't seem like a good strategy because we would have probably seen a lot of retirements. <laughs> so what we did is we created just a little sheet which allowed him to mark down every day how many cans of each thing we sold. Then he would take that. And then, so now I have these 50 stores, each with a little sheet. I had to get them back somehow to me. I didn't have any way to send them to me. So I hired like six guys on motorcycles and their job was literally to cruise around Metro because Metro Manila traffic is like, you know, you've in Southeast Asia, then traffic was like just horrendous, but they had these little scooters and they would ride around and they would pick up the sheets, bring them back. And I had a little data processing group. And they would pull the data into this OLAP tool quickly. They'd key it all in. And all of a sudden I had share data, like right there. I, I could see, well, I could see my data and my sales that day. It turned out that, that our two big competitors, Abbott and Wyeth, both had shelves right next to ours. So my guy, the guy that I had worked a deal with them so that he could get their information too. So I had all the, I had all the share information for this. I had perfect retail audit data in a market where you would never, you know, there was no such thing as a Nielsen or anything like that. So, wow. That's, so. I mean, for that point in time, I know probably it sounds really primitive to, you know, people in their early part of their career. That's pretty incredible that you came up with that system. The thing that I kind of learned is one, you can always figure out a way to measure anything. You don't need to make it perfect, right? It wasn't a perfect yeah. measurement, but it was, I did it the same way every time. So as long as you do it the same way, a little bit off, it's, it's okay. And, and the second thing is it, it actually enabled us to convince corporate headquarters because their first reaction when the revenue started to slump was cut all the advertising spend, but we were able to convince them that, no, this is not a, this is a distribution problem. It's not a, a sale, a demand problem. And they let us keep spending the advertising, even though we didn't make as much money that year, but that business like totally took off after that. So it was a huge, you know, it was kind of a big deal because, because of the way they were looking at it. They, you know, once you got past the accounting, you could see some pretty interesting things. So it was kind of a, a formative experience for me in terms of looking behind the. I bet it uh, was. And were you still a CPA at that point? You're correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, yeah, still... I, I gave mine up like probably five years ago. I'm, I'm yeah, guessing you uh, might have at some point along the way too. But... No, like, I, I still kept it, but you're, oh, but I, wow. yeah, but I, but I always say I don't practice, I don't sign, <laughs> I wouldn't sign an audit opinion and, and I wouldn't want to talk too much on lease accounting or 606 with you. Yeah. Like you, I was less than a great auditor. I've been good at other jobs, but that wasn't for me. But yeah. I know you're passionate about FP&A. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've sort of gone on the record as saying that I think the next wave of CFOs are going to be more likely to come from FP&A backgrounds than from the traditional controllership backgrounds. Yeah. yeah. But I... FP&A has changed a lot. 
it's, it's changed probably as much in the last three years as it, as it might have had in the 20 years before that. Yeah. What are you seeing out there? How's it changing both technology and just from a general business standpoint? I think I think it's a great a great question because a couple of things are changing. One is if you think about, I always kind of think about that architecture of the accounting function, you know. And I'll say this to people: if you really think about it, the accounting piece, which I sort of think of as everything that goes back from the present, you know, gets you to where all your debits equal your credits. That that that's about twenty percent of the value as long as it works. If it doesn't work. It, you're in big trouble. It's like electricity, right? And all of a sudden you can't, it doesn't matter how good your big screen TV is. If your electricity doesn't work, you're, it's all you're going to think about is your electricity. But, but once you get past that, the value is on the FP&A side because they're putting the story together with the numbers, right? They're kind of telling you, here's how to win. Here's what, here's what your next 12 months look like. Here's what your story looks like. So I, I agree with you. I think FP&A gives you that window into not just what happened, I mean, I, I had, I've had controller. I remember one time a controller at K12 and we were desperate to hear our numbers for the month because we were, we were ready to report pretty quickly. And she kept saying, you know, I'm not closed yet. And I kept walking by her office. Are you closed? And she's like, just leave me alone. I'll close. Finally, she goes, John, come here. She goes, I'm closed. And I go, how do we do? And she literally just stopped and she like paused and she goes, I don't know, really. She had no idea. She, what she cared about was the process. The process worked and it was an important process, but it didn't get you to, well, how did the story end? How do I feel about this? What do I, and that's where FP&A comes in. It's really the, the emotional side, I think, of, of the finance. If there is an emotional side to the finance function, that's probably it. Yeah, it's nothing more emotional than the financial side. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because there are people who are fantastic controllers, but they just, you know, they can make a great yeah. career, particularly now more than ever. They, you know, there's real money being a controller these days. But but a lot of them, a lot of great controllers just can't make the leap to being a CFO. Yeah. And yeah. but, you, you know, it just it's a wider skill set. I was one of those. I was a, a competent controller, but nothing special. But yeah. I was actually yeah. a pretty good CFO, despite only being, you know, yeah. somewhat maybe slightly above average as a controller so did, did, did you find I, I imagine when you became a cfo and you had that controller and the fpna person half the battle of a cfo seems like it's it's making that conversation happen you know what i mean because they speak very different languages and they look at the world in a very different way yeah yeah the controller great controllers don't but a lot of controllers they sort of it's all about what's happened yeah. And the FP&A is all about what's possible, what we can make. Yeah. And they're both invaluable. But as a CFO, the FP&A people were more interesting to me, right? You well, know, get, yeah, yeah. They're getting you to where, where you want to, where you want to be. Sorry. And yeah. I mean, some people used to describe the controller function, like the, in battle, the people with the bayonets that they stabbed the bodies to make sure that they were really dead. It wasn't the most flattering thing they could say, but I understood the analogy for sure. I think I've just been triggered. Sorry about that. We'll have to edit that part of this conversation. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Anyway, no. but one thing, like a lot of companies still, even you know, with great CFOs doing great things, but there, there are still some companies that don't view, just they don't get the value of finance and accounting and they don't really view it as strategic. It's just all about compliance and expense yeah. management. And so, you know, that can be problematic when it comes time to, you know, like getting a new ERP system, whatever the technology yeah, to yeah. make the company run. As a CFO, how can she make sure that, you know, she's getting the respect and the resources for her team to make that whole thing effective or his team? So. You know what? I think, I think the first thing is, as a CFO, 
you got to realize that and you got to explain to people that finance is really not about numbers at all. I think finance is about conversation. It's driving a conversation that's informed. You know, it's like it's like if you know how on the in the in the NBA games, I'll use this uh, the basketball, but <laughs> you know how when they call a timeout, I'm always the four coaches always move out a little ways from the player and they sit around and look at the clipboard together and decide what to do. What you have to think about when they're having that discussion is what's not in that discussion, but what is actually very important to that discussion. One, they know what's on the scoreboard. The scoreboard is clear. They're not debating, well, did that point count three or did that point count two? And all the rules and the structure, you know, that's all been decided ahead of time, that policy and everything. And it's all there so that when they get together in that 45 seconds, they've already got this huge subconscious framework that enables them to make to make the decision they have to make very, very fast. So there's a lot of work that happens before that. And so finance to me is doing all that work ahead of time so that when I get to that point where I have to actually make a decision, I can drive the right conversation and I can force that right, that right choice to, uh, to a management group, you know? Yeah, no, that makes a whole lot of sense. So, so, it, so. interesting. It's good. Another good sports analogy for- I'm going to, that's the last, I promise that's the last one I go with. Fair enough. Well, I wanted to, earlier we spoke about the financial maturity curve mm-hmm. and, you know, you're still at this point, you're in a relatively uh, small company. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing that it's, it's pretty yeah. simple stuff. But, you know, tell us a little about how that changes as a company goes through some growth sure. period and, and what you've learned that you can share with our audience. It's actually what led me to, to start FutureView in the beginning, because I, I was looking for a CFO job and I was interviewing with different companies in the, you know, the, the 50 to 60 million in revenue kind of tech space, SaaS space. And everybody had the same problems. And I realized that part of the problem was the way that we architect finance in companies. It's kind of like, I always say, it's kind of like if, if you were building a house and the first people you had involved were the plumber and the electrician, and then you're like, okay, I put all the plumbing in, but now where do I want the rooms? And then you're upset because later on you find out, hey, I can only have the bathroom in the middle of the kitchen because I do the plumbing <laughs> wrong. You know, we, we architect it wrong. And so, and I started looking at companies and if you think about it, everybody goes through the same thing. You start a company, you start with maybe your own spreadsheet, then you maybe move to QuickBooks because you need to keep track of things. And somewhere along the line, maybe you get to a size where you need real financial, you know, gap financial statements or whatever. Maybe you have a bank loan or something. So you, you, you hire your first controller. And now I've got this controller and they do a good job. Usually the, that's usually where the company also somewhere is convinced, got to do the big giant ERP system. And they spend a lot of money on an ERP system, and to, but that's going to solve all the problems. And, and now you're the CEO and you're, you're, you're seeing the results and you're like, these aren't telling me what I want to know about the business. You know, they're, it's great. I know that my, you know, my, my rent is this and my basic expenses are this, but it's not really telling me what I need to know to make decisions. You know, things like bookings and all those other metrics that, that really are important for a business. So then what usually happens is CEO goes out and hires a, a former banker you know, it's always a former banker. I don't know why who comes in and says, Oh, we're going to build a model. We're going to start with, you know, here's our bookings and here's our target market. And here's how many we're going to get. And he builds this, he or she builds this incredible model that gets them to, here's what revenue is going to look like in the next 10 years. The problem is a lot of times they start with a false beginning point. You know what I mean? The business is X, but they start with what they thought the business was going to be eight months before when they heard the pitch from the CEO and joined the company. So the models are often not synchronized. And then the second thing is 
you end up with two people talking to the CEO with different languages. One of them is, you know, my, my, my former banker is telling me, you know, bookings are going through the roof and my controller is telling me revenue is going down every single month. And I'm the CEO and I'm like, I can't put all this together. And that's usually where they, they bring in the CFO, right. To put it all together and, and synchronize it. But, but it's because that architecture is wrong. And so if you think about that process, that process can take years. And during those years, those are pretty formative decision periods for a, for a growing company. They're making it without the benefit of having that properly architected view. So, so that's really, that's what I mean by that maturity curve. And I, I would say for a typical company, it's at least five or six years from the point till the point where they get to where they're really having informed conversations around trusted financial information. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what the economy would be like without a rules-based accounting system, right? Yeah. But, yeah. you know, even I'm a former CPA and, and you know, I, I'm running a relatively modest mm -hmm. business, but I can't use gap accounting. It, it's, to yeah. me, it, it's just, it doesn't bring me any value. It's all about cash flows and KPIs. and It shows you everything but what you really want to see, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, in and, fact, I, I think it also kind of within a company sometimes especially allocations. I always, I have a old statement. I used to, I always say allocations sort of kill accountability, you know, because accountants love to allocate. I love to allocate. It's, there's nothing more fun than taking something and spreading it on a percentage basis and it fits neatly into the little buckets. But then you find out that I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a, a P&L and I'm saying, well, wait, why am I being charged for this? Well, I'm getting allocated two tenths of, you know, X that I have no control over. I want to, I want to see the the part of the business that I can control and the expenses I can control and understand that piece. So, um, you know, and I, and I understand why we allocate, but, but it doesn't really necessarily help me operate the business. Operational accounting and gap accounting diverge a lot, I think. In that. Yeah, indeed. You know, I, I used to advise people when you're talking to a non-financial person, just don't even use gap. If you, if you yeah. can avoid it, I mean, sometimes yeah. they can't, but, but now I almost say, look, when you're talking to a CFO, don't use gap anymore. Cause it's, you know, it, a lot yeah. of CFOs, you know, they know it, but, you know, they, they just don't want to, they can't run their side of the business either. With it, so it, it doesn't really, it's, I don't know, I'd love to hear your view on this because you talk to a ton of people in this space, but I sometimes feel like I understand all the reasons for why some of the gap has gotten so complicated, but I almost feel like we're a little too clever by half. Like, you know, it, it's, it's like, like looking at rent expense now on a PL, sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what we really, pay. what I really want to know is what's that check I'm writing every month and what's that it's look like? Only what's going to cost me, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because I remember, and you know, it, it, in my first accounting book, I remember the, the very first sentence, for whatever reason I remember it. And it was accounting is the language of business. And I thought that was pretty powerful, you know, back yeah. when I was a sophomore in college or whatever. And now I'd almost say accounting is the language of accountants. It's gotten too technical, too sophisticated, too arcane that yeah. nobody but except like a, an accounting professor and, a, you know, an audit partner and, you know, a, a few other people can even understand it, right? It just, it's, it no longer serves its intended purpose, which is to help people make business decisions. But, you know, I, I, thank, thank God for FP&A and, you know, modern financial modeling. Yeah, yeah. Kind of work with both, and they they, you know, they, they know. kind of figure out how to decipher it and make it. Yeah, no, it's I agree. I, I you it's know, a, it's, it's an issue. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you go public, I get it. You need to, you know, yeah. you can't just report the way you want to that, you know, you need to follow these rules and whatnot. But uh, do you remember they used to say like, you're supposed to think about the financials as being useful for the widow, right? The widow who is reading it needs to understand it. And I, I don't know, I challenge the average widow to look at the, an S1 and make sense of it. Cause a lot of these things don't make any sense or they're very complicated. Oh yeah. Even like new accounting rule, you know, the accountant will come out. It'll be, you know, that thick. And if people don't see me, I'm you yeah. know, indicating about four inches. Like who's going to read that except an SEC accountant or someone, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the DFO doesn't have time to sit down and read something like that. It's like the size of Moby Dick. It's, so it's, but cool. uh, yeah. anyway, this has been great. And I, I'd love to end with, you know, I, I think you can give some great advice to the young listeners. So sure. if you could come up with one thing to give to the modern finance leader, somebody who's on a path to becoming a CFO, what would that be? And if you really need to, I'll give you two. But. You know, I, I think the first one would be to really understand the business you're in as opposed to the, don't let the numbers keep you from understanding the business you're in. Because for you to be a partner, you've got to have a certain empathy for that, for for the people who are trying to drive revenue and everything. And, and really understanding that model in a, Yes, financial way, but also bringing a, you know, a non-financial perspective to it. You got to know when to be a, a finance person and when to say, no, this is the way we record this. And you'll have those situations. This is how we're going to record revenue because this is the rule. And then when to take off your hat and say, but what does that really mean? And what are we trying to, and what's the right move here? I, I always, lawyers are good at that because sometimes they'll say, yeah, we could sue you for this, this, and this, but is that really a good idea? You know, and that, that kind of combination, I think is important. So I think one is really understanding your business. Like I said, I always believe in sort of one team, one PL. i I, I'm a big believer in, and the reason I, I like being a CFO is because it's not about you getting the numbers right. It's about your company winning in some way. And so you want to really identify with whatever it takes to make the overall team win. And if you have to get involved in areas that every company has areas that need a little shoring up at different times and a good CFO can kind of slot in there for a little while and play that role. I think that's great advice. So John, I think we're probably close to the limit, but thanks for all of your words of wisdom and for your time and energy. It was fantastic hey, for my end. Might as well, Jack, really enjoyed it. And thanks for the time. I really enjoyed it. Me too. And I do also want to thank Stampley again for making this possible. I I just think they're doing such a great thing for the up and coming financial leaders. So. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.